Well, for the last time, we can turn in our Bibles to the book of 2 John. We've come to the end of another book. That didn't take very long. Uh, we're going to look at verses 7 through 13 this morning. So 7 to the end of 2 John. We'll see today how doctrine divides, and it does need to be so when there is the reality of deceivers. So uh, we'll read the entire book, but we're just going to look at verses 17 through 13. I'll begin reading at verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth, as we receive commandment from the Father. Now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you've heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which uh, we worked for, that which we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ is both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and, and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, again, we are thankful for your word and for the truth that does unite your people. Thank you for the outworking of your truth in love as we seek to, as your people, to walk according to the truth, that we would love one another, that we would care for one another, and that we would do so in a way that is pleasing unto you and according to what your word says. We're also thankful, O Lord, for doctrine that does divide. We are thankful for the truth of Christ that we can know and we're thankful that this helps us spot those who deny you, spot those teachers, those false teachers, those pseudo-Christs who come and claim to be the Messiah or come and claim to preach uh, a, the true Christ, but in reality preach a false Christ. And so we pray that we would know more about the person and work of our Savior. That we would know more about who he is, that we might be able to spot those who speak falsely concerning you. And help us to know that the true and living God, that the true and living Christ is the bread of life. And that as we hear him, as we hear the words concerning him, something happens to us. We're thankful for the salvation that is wrought by your word. We're thankful for the spirit working with the word. But we're thankful that you nourish and strengthen us with your word. And so we pray that we would be a people of the truth. That we would recognize the church is the pillar and ground of truth. That as we seek to honor you in this lower world, as we seek to love our fellow brothers and sisters, as we love our fellow men, as we love our families, as we have various jobs and vocations that we do, we pray that we would love you, but as we do so, it would be founded on the truth. 
and that we would be nourished and grounded in the truth, that we would hear it, that we would be fed, that we'd be recharged, and that we would be recharged spiritually, that you would feed us today, that you would work in us today, and that we would be awake and attentive for what you have to say to us today. We pray that the sun of righteousness would shine brighter in our minds and our hearts, that we might feel the warmth of his rays all the more, and that that might help us and energize us to honor and glorify you in all that we do. We know that we need your spirit. We know that we need illumination. So please be with us now by your spirit to better understand what your word says. And we pray that those who, for those who know you, please encourage them. For those who do not know you, please save them. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when I introduced the first sermon, I referenced that saying, that creed of some, doctrine divides, but love unites. And I highlighted how it's usually used as an insult for those who want to hold fast to theological understanding, who appreciate the importance of doctrine. And I highlighted then that this saying is correct to some degree. Uh, Doctrine really does divide, but the false part of that saying, or what the saying misses, is that doctrine unites. So we looked at the past couple weeks about how doctrine unites, and we'll see some of that again today. But part of that saying really is true. Doctrine really does divide, and we need it to be so. We need it to divide, especially in light of deceivers, in light of antichrists, in light of false teachers. We need to know the truth concerning our Lord and Savior, that we might know then who to fellowship with. And so John is highlighting that. This book is filled with lots of encouragement, filled with lots of uh, uh, love, but it's also filled with warning. How do we know somebody? How do we test? How can we uh, recognize whether one is of Christ or is not of Christ? Well, it has to be by what they say. And if one is not of Christ, if one denies Christ, if a teacher claims to be of Christ and denies Christ, well, then we must divide and we must not receive that person because there is the reality of deceivers. And John is writing to encourage, but also writing to warn them. Here's how you live in light of the fact that there are going to be deceivers and antichrists in this fallen world. So the problem is very clear. Deceivers who distort the truth. That's just the reality of this fallen world. We simply must accept that. We must deal with that and make sure that we hold fast to the truth that God has given to us. Because if we do not, it could threaten the unity of the church. It even could threaten weak believers, although God will preserve them till the end. And it could very well remove temporary believers. Temporary believers are those who may look like they have believed, but they've never laid hold of Christ whatsoever. They've never believed upon him by faith, but some other means, some other thing they are laying hold of. And so for humans with eyes and ears, how is it that we know one is of Christ or not? Certainly by their fruits, but also by their doctrine and what they say. And so in 2 John 7 through 13, John warns that there are deceivers that we must not receive. There are those who are antichrists that we must be able to identify who they are, and the church of Christ should not receive them. Doctrine really does divide. And so we'll look at this doctrine dividing under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the reality of deceivers in verses 7 and 8. Secondly, we'll see the importance of doctrine in verses 9 through 11. And then lastly, we'll see the joy of dwelling 
in verses 12 and 13. So three points, reality of deceivers, the importance of doctrine, and the joy of dwelling. So three Ds. Let's first look at the reality of deceivers in verses 7 and 8. Now, context, again, is important. We've seen with this greeting how he greets them in the truth. The word truth is used four times in that greeting. What unites the church is the truth of Christ Jesus. How do we see that outworked? Well, it's in love for one another that is founded upon that truth. And so we see John expressing his love for the elect lady, uh, his love for her children. And I tried to point out that the new boys, and as well as me, I think that is referring to the local church that John is writing to, and it's referring to the church members. The lady refers to the church as a whole, the local church as a whole in general, and the children refer to her church members. And so he's writing to encourage this way. Then he rejoices in verses four through six. He's heard how they've walked in the truth, the right doctrine, right practice. And he highlights how this old commandment, one they've heard from the beginning, is what steadies them. They don't need a new gospel. They don't need a new commandment. They have received it already. Paul, uh, John has received it from Christ. John has received it from the Savior. And John now has passed that down to his community. Our life is one of freedom now to walk according to God's commandments. And so we then ought to walk. And there's a reason we ought to walk in this way. And that's what verse 7 highlights with the first word, for. Why is the for there? Why is the therefore there? What is its purpose? It's to highlight the reason that we ought to walk in the truth. And the reason we ought to walk in the truth or hold fast to the truth is because there are men who are not of the truth. There are men who deceive. There are men who swindle. There are men who lie. And we need to know what is right and true in order to be able to spot them. The Lord Jesus has warned about these men in Mark chapter 13, which is Mark's Olivet Discourse. That's more in my mind than Matthew 24 because I preached through Mark 13. But there are pseudo-Christs we need to watch out for. There are many who come in my name that we need to watch out for, Jesus says. We need to be on guard. And one of the things that uh, Jesus is highlighting in Mark 13 is the presence of these types of ones signifies that it's not the end yet. When there's wickedness, when there's false Christ, the end has not come yet. So we should be encouraged we have not missed the boat. We have not missed Christ's coming. And Paul also encourages uh, the church at Thessalonica with this as well. When there's still sin in this fallen world, it's a sign uh, that it is not the end, but a, t- a sign of the end times, a sign of the time of Christ's first and second coming uh, is these men who are deceivers who have gone out. And so we see there's this reality of them and we see their origin in verse seven. For many deceivers have gone out. And if we're building on what is said in first John two and first John four, The implication seems to be is that these ones started in the church. So they've heard something about the Savior. They've heard something about Christ, but they reject that very thing. And rather than submitting to that, rather than just being a regular everyday heathen, they want to promote their own thing. They want to promote their distortion of Christianity. They want, it's what we call a cult. It's a corruption of Christianity, a corruption of a thing that is true And so we see these deceivers start in the church. John says they went out from us, 
but they were not of us. So they originate in the church, uh, perhaps someone with a little bit of knowledge. Uh, They decide they want to then promote this little bit of knowledge and spread it to uh, to their mission field. So they start in the church. There are many of them, and they have gone out into the world. That is their mission field. There's no church backing, and they don't like that, so they just decide, let's just do our own thing anyway. And so they go out into the world. So they've perhaps originated. Uh, certainly there are some who did originate within the Johannine community, within John's community. Uh, but there are many who are traveling around saying they're missionaries, saying they're of God. And so what do we do with them when there are these deceivers? Well, before we get there, we see their identity. How do we know that they are a deceiver? Well, they go out into the world, start in the church. They're called deceivers. How do we know? Who do not, verse 7, confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. See how important Christology is? Knowing who Jesus is is absolutely vital to the gospel of free and sovereign grace. It's absolutely crucial to one's salvation. And we see that here. They're denying the incarnation. It was this doketic Christology. They taught, that's the term used for this heresy. They taught that Jesus only appeared to come in the flesh. He didn't actually come in the flesh. He perhaps was a phantom. He perhaps was uh, it's a, uh, an apparition, so to speak. He only looked like someone who actually came in the flesh. And that's founded upon their view of the world. They viewed matter bad and spirit good. So how can one who is ultimate and good and pure be the one who takes on a human nature? So they did not want him to take on a human nature. But as we're going to see in verses 9 and 10, we need him to take on a human nature. We need to be uh, him to be like us in every way, yet without sin. So that's the main issue. What do they say about Jesus? If they deny that he came in the flesh, we then know that this is a deceiver and an antichrist. And so Jesus, again, talked about deceivers in Mark 13. He talked about pseudo-Christs in Mark 13. And then John is the only one who talks about antichrists. And so perhaps you know my view, perhaps you maybe forgot my view when it comes to the antichrist and what this is referring to. We certainly, we see Antichrist, the term is only ever used in John's letters. It's not not used in Revelation. It's not used in other books, just 1 John and 2 John. 1 John 2, 1 John 4, and 2 John. And we pointed out that how we identify these ones has always been Christological. Now, there are many, and this can be an intramural debate, many reformed people who believe there's going to be an end-time meanie, some big main antichrist who is going to come just before Christ comes back. That is not necessarily wrong. I'm not going to say you're not part of the church. If you believe that, that's perfectly okay. But I do take a bit of a differing view with respect to that. I think in 1 John 2, there should be quotations following B.B. Warfield. In 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, quote, Antichrist is coming. People were perhaps freaking out about some guy named Antichrist who is going to come, but John assures them, even now, many Antichrists have come. Now, it could be the case there is a big uh, end-time meaning, but the point of 1 John and 2 John is we don't have to go looking for them, looking for him. 
We know exactly what they are. We know exactly how to identify them. And the whole point of Second John, or First John, I think, and Second John, is don't freak out. Don't worry about it. There's the reality that these ones are going to be present in the world. So how do we know? How do I, we identify them? It has to do with their views of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my thought seems to be, this is a deceiver. If you come across one, you come across a missionary, you come across one or who claims to be a preacher and says, I'm a preacher of God, and he says and denies that Jesus came in the flesh, that one, whoever you identify, whoever you come in contact with, it could be many, it could be multiple, it could be one you come across in your life, that one is a deceiver. That one is an antichrist. So even too, the New King James interprets it with a lowercase a. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. I think in the scriptures, the last hour, last days, last times, all refers to the time between Christ's first and second coming. So are we in the last hour? You bet we're in the last hour. Are we in the end times? Absolutely we are. But so was John. John was in the last hour at his time. John was in the last days at his time, just like we are as well, because it is that time between Christ's first and second coming. And John is writing to say, don't freak out. And so that's important for us, right? Don't freak out. There are going to be antichrists. They are going to come. We just need to deal with that reality. Now, I do think the rest of, uh, the, of the section, mainly verses 8 through 11, uh, highlights what we are to do with them. What are we to do with these ones uh, who are antichrist? What is the response of God's people? Well, let's just look at verse 8 as we finish out point number 1. Notice, we are to look to ourselves. Notice, he doesn't say, sell everything you have. He does not say, try to figure out who's some big end time. No, he says, look to yourselves, not for our salvation, but he wants us to do some theological reflection. He wants them to do some faith-filled reflection. Have we believed on Jesus Christ? Do we hold fast to the truth of who Jesus is? Do we believe what John says in the, at the beginning of 1 John, this word of life, that we beheld, that we touched, that we saw, have we, and we all need to ask ourselves that question, have we believed upon him? Have we looked to him? We need to look to ourselves and have some self-examination, not worry about what everything else, everyone else is doing, not worry about whether or not this guy or that guy, no, how, we need to look to ourselves. Have we believed and hold fast to what is said about our Savior. So he says, look to yourselves. Then he goes on to explain what he means by this. That we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now this is a difficult image and a difficult latter part of this verse. I think what is going on here, I think he's still referring to faith. Now I need you just to hear me out. If you're sleeping, please wake up in this moment. I don't want you to chime in and see or uh, come in late because we're going to talk about how faith uh, uh, is a work metaphorically. Can I just say that? Faith is a work metaphorically. I'm not saying faith is a work actually, but I think what he is doing here is to highlight when we work hard for something, the image of working hard for something 
it should not be easily given up. Christ Jesus should not be easily given up. The truth of Christ should not be easily given up. And so when he refers to work here, he is referring to faith. Not to lose the things we worked for, the things we believed upon, but then also the outworking of that, the reward, is eternal life. Because eternal life only ever comes by faith. And here's why I think this is the case. Turn with me to John 6. John 6, verses 26 through 29. So Jesus has fed the 5,000. Now he's going to give them a lesson about the bread from heaven. This is the section about how Jesus is the bread of life. So listen to the words of our Lord in verses 26 through 29. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Labor for it, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Verse 28. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And now notice verse 29. This is important. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So it's not so much that faith is a work in the sense that I am doing something to earn my salvation. Faith is a gift, Ephesians chapter 2. But we see the imagery of work and reward when it comes to the idea of faith. Does that make sense? Is everybody tracking with me with that? He's not saying that we enter in by faith and remain in by works. He's not saying that at all. But the thing that we worked for or the thing that we have believed upon is the way we receive the reward of eternal life. And it's always Christ Jesus and who he is. He is the one we need to look to. He is the one we always need to look upon. And even in our Christian life, it's similar to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. You begin in the spirit, but continue in the flesh. No, we always continue in the spirit, and we always continue according to Christ Jesus, and always continue by faith in Christ Jesus. And Jesus does use the language of labor and working with that parable of the workers in Matthew chapter 20. So hopefully that explains a little bit about what is going on here. He's using this work-reward image to describe something that should not be easily given up. Namely, the gift of faith, not that uh, true people of God can give it up, but he's highlighting how important it is in the fallen world as we're pressing on in this life to look to Christ Jesus, to consider whether we have believed upon him or not, and not to lose that wonderful reward of eternal life. The thing that we have worked for, or Christ has worked for and given to us by faith. So don't lose it, brethren. Don't turn from this. Don't turn from Christ Jesus. And I do believe that all true believers will be held until the end and preserved until the end. But I'm not at the end yet. We're still walking in time and space. I have eyes, I have ears, but I don't have omniscience to see what is going on. I don't have the view of the end. So the point is, in light of these deceivers, believe on Christ. In light of the deceivers, 
always look to Christ. In light of the deceivers, always hold fast to Christ Jesus and do not give him up. Do not give up our Lord. Christ will preserve, but we press on. Christ is our King. Christ is our Lord. We watch out. We are careful by knowing the truth, by believing the truth, and holding fast to the truth that God has given to us. I mean, this, this whole section really is application. Do not give up. Hold fast to Christ Jesus by faith. So there are the reality of deceivers, and we need to be uh, watch about how we watch, uh, look for them, how we identify them, but also we need to look to ourselves, and all of this stems from and is founded upon doctrine. What is the truth? So there's the reality of deceivers, which is verses 7 and 8. Let's then now look at the importance of doctrine, verses 9 through 11. So the importance of doctrine, verses 9 through 11. And so we'll look in verse 9 about what it means for the individual, and then we'll see what it means for the church. Let's first look at what doctrine means for the individual. No Christ, no God. (laughs) No doctrine of Christ, you do not have God. If you have Christ, you have God. That is what he is trying to say here. This is where we can reflect a little bit further. This is where we can ask ourselves some questions about who our Savior is and ask ourselves whether or not we have looked to him, whether or not we continue to look to him by faith. We need to be actively listening. I was talking to someone about this a couple weeks ago, the importance of actively listening, not just sitting back and having a blank mind, but actively listening, asking questions, thinking, pondering. It's important for that. There's a give and take, right? I can't be boring. I need to give you the truth, but I need you to actively listen with me as well. So let's do some reflection on this together. So he says in verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Now there is a variant reading. I do think the word transgression should be here. Now we're not looking for sinless perfection, are we? I mean, we saw that in 1 John. We see we confess our sins and He's faithful and just to forgive us. We have to recognize uh, that we're sinful. One of the problems with these false teachers is that they denied any sort of sin, both in its nature and its acts. They didn't think they had any, but we need to identify what the problem is. What's the problem? We're sinful. What's the problem? We still have remaining corruption, and we still can and do sin very much. But thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, we are forgiven in him. And so the reality is God's people will transgress, but God's people also know the forgiveness of that and will be strengthened in this Christian life. But notice whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. The two go hand in hand because in Christ Jesus, there is mercy and forgiveness. The truth of who Jesus is, of what he has done for us, the salvation that he has brought, we need to know him And we need to hold fast to him. And thankfully, because of him, whatever transgression we have done, past, present, and we will commit, are forgiven in him. All of it is forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back to that variant just for a moment. Again, I do think the word transgress is the right translation here. It's the text that undergirds the New King James. However... I do think the the variant reading provides an apt illustration of 
these deceivers, what a deceiver is. And the variant reading says this, whoever goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. Whoever runs ahead. You ever have children who run ahead and you tell them to stop because they don't know where they're going? That's exactly what these deceivers are like. They are running ahead, but as they run ahead, rather than building upon that firm foundation, they're running ahead and they have no idea where they are going. It is perhaps like, uh, that's why preachers should not be novices. They need to know what they're doing. That's why we need to know the way, the truth, and the life, which is who? It is Christ Jesus. If we go back to that path imagery that we've seen in this book, as we walk that path, we know the way that is Christ Jesus, and we walk according to his path, looking to him always. When he is removed, we do not know the way. When Christ is removed, we do not know where we are going. And the deceivers have run ahead without that. The deceivers have run ahead without knowing where they are going. A man who is called, and but go, not called, sorry, and goes out anyway. And so that image, I think, is apt to describe what they are doing. They are running ahead. They are sinning, but they are running ahead, and they are not building upon that foundation that is in Christ Jesus. And so we have to ask again, do we believe upon Christ Jesus? Because he goes on to say in verse 9, he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. But then we've talked about the hypostatic union a lot. Some people might think that it's highfalutin mumbo-jumbo, but brethren, that is absolutely crucial when it comes to knowing who our Christ is. There's other language I could use. I do keep that out of it, but hypostatic union is absolutely vital. The one person, and we see the two natures united in that one person because it's absolutely vital to your well-being. It's absolutely vital to your salvation. It's absolutely vital when it comes to identifying who false teachers are. It's for our protection and for our assurance. The more we know about our Christ, the more assured we can be. And so this is meant to be an encouragement. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. How is it that we have the Father it's because of the Son who took on a human nature. We did see how John unpacked this for us when he dealt with the Antichrist in 1 John 2. I particularly loved 1 John 4. I can have passages that I like to preach through more than others. I particularly loved 1 John 4 with the unpacking of the Trinity and unpacking of the love of God and how we see the love of God. It comes in the fact that the one who is the eternal Son took on a human nature. Because that's important, isn't it? Because we need a mediator, don't we? Now, if you have been reading or going through the McShane calendar, you will have read Job 9. And hopefully to drive home the importance of this hypostatic union, why we need a mediator such as Christ, who is fully God, but also fully man, please turn to Job 9. And as we're turning there, it's important to remind ourselves that where there's not two persons, two subjects, two who's, but it's the one who. The one who, who takes on, who is God, eternal God, who takes on a human nature. 
The one who rules the wind and the waves, the one who created all things, is the one who identifies with us in a most marvelous way. But I think Job 9 highlights why we need such a mediator. It's taken me forever to get there. Just give me a minute here. Job 9. I can't talk and turn at the same time. But verses 32 through 35. For he is not a man as I am. God is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we should go to court. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. God is not man, and when the Son takes on a human nature, he does not stop being God, but he takes on a human nature. So that we have such a mediator, the one who is God and man, the one who has and lays hold and places his hand on us both. We have such a mediator, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We have one who is able to identify us uh, and identify with us, who is like us in every way, yet without sin. And it's the one who is eternal God. That is how much we could say, speaking in the manner of men, how much God loves us, how much God loves his people, that the son would take on a human nature and would be like us in every way, yet without sin. And now here comes these heretics, and they say, he didn't actually come in the flesh. Well, then where is our mediator? Where is the one who has his hand on both of us? Where is the one who has his hand on both man and God, the one who is fully God and fully man? See how important doctrine is? See how important using all that language, hypostatic union is for the people of God. It protects us, it keeps us, it provides for us, and it assures us. John 14, 23 says, using the language of the Father and me and I and him and he in you, he talks about how the Father and the Son will come and dwell with those who remain in the truth. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You see, the word of God, isn't, aren't, they're not just words. Something happens, right? We believe upon Christ and we're saved. The word goes forth and people are nourished and strengthened by the word of God. The teaching of Christ, they're not just words, but they are words that give something and they bring something. And in the words of what we see in the scriptures, in the words of the word of God, in the words of the gospel, there is life everlasting. And there is life in the words and continued life as we press on in those very things. That's why we continually feed upon the bread of life each and every Lord's Day, each and every time that we gather. We grow in the knowledge. We grow in the truth. We bear fruit becoming of those who are in Christ Jesus. And we grow in that and we bear fruit by being fed by our Christ, by being fed by his word, that we might then go out into the world, that we might then be able to love one another, that we might then be able to work hard, that we might be able to not be irritable and not be angry as we saw last time uh, in the sixth commandment. We need to be fed and nourished to be able to do uh, what God asks of us. And we won't do it perfectly, but we need to be reminded he feeds us. That's why it's the means of grace. It's what God does for us. And the words of truth 
feed us. That's why we need to be under it. That's why we need to know it. That's why we need to know who our Christ is. It means something for the people of God individually, but it also does mean something for the church as well. And this is in verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. So whoever transgresses, whoever does not abide, he who abides has the Father and the Son. So what do we do if someone comes to our church and says, I like to preach? If someone says, I like to be a missionary, or I'm a missionary, please let me come to your church and share what I'm doing. How do we welcome them in? What do we do? And I need to make a few comments about hospitality in the Greco-Roman world, because it's a little bit different to some degree than what we do. I'm all for having people over. I'm all for calling up someone in the church and inviting them over for a meal. I'm all for all those sorts of things. That, that's the vehicle of fellowship what we are united in, what gives us fellowship is Christ Jesus. Why are we united? It's in Christ. And we can sit around a meal because we are all in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what the, our meals are for. But in the Greco-Roman world, the main thing had to do with traveling. And you didn't stay at hotels in the Greco-Roman world. There were not nice places to be. You wouldn't stay at a holiday. There were no holiday inns. Or is that even a nice place to stay anymore? I don't know. But... Uh, there weren't great places to be. So you had to rely upon Christians when you were traveling. And so there were some rules, there was some etiquette that they had to follow. I mean, uh, certainly the guests don't insult or usurp or just make their themselves at home uh, in someone's home. Uh, and the, um, the, the owner was supposed to honor and be kind and be gracious to them. But one thing that's important is the host functioned as a guarantor for their guests. They could speak on their behalf. So this all plays, and this is all important for what we're about to see as far as rejecting someone who should not be in the church. So verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the context has to do with false teachers claiming to be missionaries. They're claiming some formal relationship. How I would speak to a heretic is different than how I would speak to your everyday heathen. That's important. We're not talking about ostracizing or kicking out your everyday heathen. We want sinners to come into the church of Christ and hear the word of God. Please come in and be saved. We want that. We're talking about men who went out of the church claiming to be a missionary, and then there is some sort of... Uh, uh, there could be some sort of formal recognition by the one who invites them in. So that's what John is saying. You cannot identify with them in this way. If anyone comes to you, does not bring this doctrine, he who abides in the doctrine of Christ as the Father and the Son, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. Don't even invite him in, whether it's personally or perhaps more with the context, into the church of Christ. Do not allow them to come in and have a voice. Do not allow them to come in and enter into that pulpit. That's why... Our pulpit is highly protected, perhaps maybe a little too harsh sometimes, but we want those who are vetted. We want those who are uh, affirmed. I get emails all the time. Please invite, could so-and-so? No, they cannot come to the church. Could this person come? No, they're not allowed in. I know exactly what they're, I can read their statement of faith. Absolutely not. Because we need to protect the church of Christ. We need to protect the truth of Christ. And our fellowship is in Christ not in false teaching. Because he goes on to say, verse 11, this is a bit of a warning. He who greets him shares in his evil 
deeds. We share in Christ, but if you invite him in, if you formally recognize this one, you perhaps share in his evil deeds. So again, the point is not to ostracize and to kick out everyone. It's not to unchurch someone who might have a differing opinion on an extra thing than you do, but it has to, it's very specific in nature. Here is one who claims to be of God, claims to be a teacher of God, claims to be sent of God, but preaches a false Christ. And there are many ways to identify that. One is knowing the truth. Another is a man who has not been sent by a church. That is a huge thing. man who has not been approved and sent by the church, that is a huge, huge red flag for me. And so the point is, don't welcome them in. Don't welcome deceivers. Don't welcome antichrist. We need to know, uh, we need to protect the church of Christ. And doctrine helps us determine that, doesn't it? The truth helps us see that. And even on a broader scale and a broader application, as far as for how we do the th uh, things that we do in our church, the confession of faith is very, very helpful, isn't it? As far as people who want to join the church, they don't have to be uh, adhered to every jot and tittle of the confession of faith. It's 32 chapters, it's 40 pages. You don't have to adhere to every jot and tittle, but no, this is what we teach, and this is what we're doing, right? Because we want to welcome people into the church of Christ. We don't want to bar people who are true believers, but may not agree with everything, uh, but we want to welcome them in. We just ask them, don't start a mutiny, but we want to welcome them in. I mean, the confession says that. No errors everting the foundation, or unholiness of life. Uh, not perfection, but just walking in a way, are we walking in a way that is pleasing to God? But as far as officers go, they do have to hold fast to the confession, every jot and tittle, so that there is some sort of unity and some sort of similar teaching when it comes to this pulpit. Branching out further, with respect to churches we associate with, I'm only ever going to plant churches with 1689 churches, second London churches. That, that is only ever what we're going to do. But if I had our conferences, okay, we might then, then might, that's a different tier perhaps, depending on who's teaching and who, who's not. Who can be invited into the pulpit? They don't have to be just second Londoners. We've had Presbyterians in the pulpit before. That's fine. And then branching out further with humanitarian aid, I'm willing to branch out further and work with differing things. But it has to be depending on what that very thing is. But Doctrine helps us with all of that, doesn't it? It helps us and gives us a picture and a grade and a guideline for how we know who we identify with. So doctrine is blessed. It saves, it helps, but also provides a lot of clarity on who we associate and who we do not associate with. And so if there anyone who comes who does not bring the doctrine of Christ, we are to not receive them, lest we share in their evil deeds. So doctrine's important. Hopefully you understood that. And if you haven't, hopefully you understand it uh, even more today. So that's the importance of doctrine. Uh, we will look thirdly and finally at the joy of dwelling. Don't worry, this will be a little bit briefer. Lord willing, verses 12 and 13, the joy of dwelling. So reality of deceivers, importance of doctrine, and why do we, why do we dwell together in doctrine? And what does it bring? It ought to bring great joy. So Notice verse 12, we see the joy of being together. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Letters are useful, but it's better to be together. If you remember during the COVID era, I hate calling it that, but there's always the argument about what is church? What is gathering? Is, is online church actually gathering? 
Is it actually meeting together? Is that what it is? And you should have known that before that happened, but I argue, no, it's not. Now, I want to have a caveat, okay? I think it's a blessing to be able to listen to sermons throughout the week. I'm thankful for the internet. I'm thankful for those who cannot come, shut in, sick, distance, all that. I'm thankful for all of that, okay? But as far as whether or not online church is church, the answer to that question is no. And this is one of those examples. This is one of those passages that I think that highlights that. It's good to write things, but it is far better to be together. One person said the medium is the message. The vehicle for which the message goes out, that contributes to the message. So here's this screen. And you can get up and just be in your jammy jams. And then you know what you can do? You can watch it any time that you want to do it. Or perhaps as it's going, I don't know about you, but even if I'm sick or I have to stay at home and I have to watch online, I'm so much more distracted. I'm sorry, I'm just being honest. I'm just more distracted. There's something about the screen that makes me more distracted. I just want to get up and grab a snack much more than I should because it's something about being in your home. And then also as well, uh, um, I can be more, e- yeah, more easily distracted. We can get up in the middle if we want to. All these things begin to teach us what? That God doesn't matter as much as I do. That God's should be a God, our life God should revolve around our life rather than our life around God. See how the medium can contribute to the message? That's why the Bible talks about preaching and gathering and do not forsake the assembling. Let us consider one another by stirring us up to love and good works, by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. Because it is a blessing to gather together. It's a blessing to be with the people of God that our joy might be full that we might encourage one another, that we might build up one another, that we might see one another. And you really can't hide, can you, when the preaching goes out? It's good for us to hear the tough things and to grow according to what God's word says. So he wants his joy to be full. He wants their joy to be full. It's a joy to dwell together. But it's also a joy to have like-minded churches. Verse 13, we kind of talked about that in the first sermon, but verse 13 highlights that again. The children of your elect sister, so another local church, greets you. Here are like-minded churches who can greet one another, who can pray for one another, who can care for one another. That's why I do love the associating of churches. And I would love one day for our church to be part of a formal association once again. Not denomination, not a top-down approach, but the power still remains in the local church, but churches who associate together for like-minded things, to encourage one another, to help one another. Certainly we're doing that uh, in many ways without an association, but it is a blessing to be able to associate, to seek advice from them, certainly free grace, we do that with them. It's just a blessing to have like-minded churches. And it's a blessing to have like-minded people. And even as we talked about in the first sermon, people from all parts of the world, when you go somewhere and there's a Reformed Baptist church, you instantly connect. There they are, like, like-minded brethren. And it is a great blessing. And so certainly we see that the children of your elect sister greet you. There is blessing uh, to dwell together. There is blessing to be in association with like-minded churches. Uh, we certainly see that. There are two churches at the Jerusalem Council, right? Antioch and Jerusalem. Antioch had a problem. They went to Jerusalem and they figured it out. What a blessing it is uh, to have fellow smart, hopefully smarter people than us uh, to help us in our 
pressing on as Christians, but also as the Church of Christ. It is a blessing to dwell together. And what unites us? What's the main point? What brings us together? It is Christ Jesus. It is knowing him. It is being found in him. It is believing upon him. It is only ever in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, please believe on Christ. Please look to him. Only in him is there everlasting life. Only in him is there peace. Only in this message can there be life. Believe upon him. You shall be saved. And brother, remember, doctrine does divide, but it needs to. And remember, doctrine also unites, and it unites us in the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to close with verse 3 of 2 John. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your clarity that you give to us, the warnings that you provide concerning deceivers and antichrists who go out into the world. And thank you that we can be assured that it is not the end, that Christ will come again. He shall make an end to uh, this present world and this uh, world, the earth and the heavens shall dissolve. And we do look for a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And so we are thankful that as you tarry and as you delay, at least according to our vantage point, we know it is for the salvation of your elect. So thank you for your tarrying. Thank you for your waiting because it meant the salvation of many here. And so we ask and pray that we would be on guard, that we would be watchful against deceivers and antichrists, and that as we do so, that we would look to ourselves, that we would have some self-examination, a holy self-examination, to consider whether or not we have laid hold of Christ, we believed upon the truth, whether we believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, whether we believe that he is the Son of God. And so thank you for the reward that we have. Thank you for the working you have worked in our hearts and lives. And thank you for this metaphor of what faith is and what we receive. And so may we not lose hold of that thing that we have believed upon. May we not lose hold of Christ and help us to know that if we are Christ, we shall never be snatched from his hands. And we pray that we would hold fast to the truth that Christ did come in the flesh. Thank you for all that that entails and what that means for us. Thank you for the word that goes forth that is life-giving concerning he who is the word. And we pray that we would hold fast to the doctrine of Christ. We would be assured of the doctrine of Christ, that if we have Christ, we have both the Father and the Son. And help us to have wisdom as your church. Help us to hold fast to the truth that you have revealed in the scriptures. Help us to hold fast to Christ Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And help us to be watchful and help us to be careful as far as this pulpit goes and who may preach in it. And we're thankful that you do give wisdom and please help us to have wisdom as we go forward. And we certainly need your help and aid as we go forward. And we pray that we would dwell together in unity, that we would love to meet with one another, that we would love to dwell with one another. And we do pray for the advancement of the church as a whole. And we do pray for the association of churches, especially uh, as things advance in Western Canada. Thank you for the encouraging things that we see. And we pray that you continue to lead and guide your people. Certainly man plans his ways. You guide our steps. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but you're the one who gives deliverance. And so may we remember that as we walk this fallen world. Be pleased to have strengthened your saints. Be pleased to save sinners. 
And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ.